Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us wherever you're listening in Southern California. Particularly, um, we're concerned, of course, you're listening in Ventura County. We know there's been flooding. We just heard about that from Suzanne. Our thoughts are with you. And that powerful storm, of course, making its way through other parts of Southern California as the day and evening goes on. Coming up later this hour, we're going to be taking a look at a hearing that was recently held in Sacramento looking at retail theft and whether criminal justice reforms like Proposition 47 or doing away with bail have had any effect on retail theft. There are competing narratives on that. The Retail Association put out a study they had to retract because the numbers were were not, in fact, accurate. We're going to be hearing from different stakeholders and varying perspectives coming up later this hour. But we begin with yesterday's uh, uh, district court uh, judge decision. This from the federal court, Judge Cormac Carney, former UCLA player, by the way, but appointed to the bench by uh, former President George W. Bush, uh, blocked California's a new law that was scheduled to go into effect, which banned the carrying of firearms in most public places. Uh, Judge Carney, in his preliminary injunction blocking the law, said it was sweeping and repugnant to the Second Amendment and openly defiant of the Supreme Court. Joining us to talk about the judge's decision and what comes next in the legal process is UCLA law professor, specialist in constitutional law, as well as author of books on gun law, Adam Winkler. Professor, good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Larry. I was so interested to see how this law was going to stand up in court because uh, the U.S. Supreme Court gave a couple of examples of sensitive places where it would be reasonable to restrict the carrying of guns. California took that to many, many more places. And um, just were you surprised at this decision? Well, I wasn't that surprised in light of the fact that the Supreme Court has really created a bit of chaos in the world of the Second Amendment. In June of last year, the Supreme Court held that individuals do have a right to carry guns in public and that government did have the authority to restrict guns from certain sensitive places. But the court didn't make clear what counts as a sensitive place. And uh, as a result, courts around the country have just been sort of going all over the map in trying to figure out the constitutionality of the kinds of restrictions that California has adopted here. In California's restrictions, it seemed like the vast majority of public spaces um, would be banned from firearms, including private businesses where uh, the default would be that guns are banned inside private businesses unless the owner posts to the opposite of that effect. 
And um, Chuck Michelle, an attorney who, who uh, was against this law, said it effectively would have kept people from traveling with a firearm in their vehicle because they couldn't help avoiding going through restricted spaces. Your response to that? Well, there's no doubt that California's enumeration of sensitive places where guns are prohibited was lengthy and included things like public parks and museums, zoos, restaurants that serve alcohol. With regards to private property, well, in fact, you do not have a right to carry a gun onto private property. Uh, A private property owner can prohibit anyone from coming onto their property, even uh, if they have firearms. What this law did was change the sort of default rule. Under the current rule, Um, You're allowed to bring guns onto private property unless the private property owner says, no, you can't. California said, well, we're just going to flip that. We're not going to really change the law very much, but we're going to say that the private – you don't have a right to carry unless – Uh, onto private property unless the owner says you can. Courts have generally, however, struck that kind of law down over the last year and a half. But it really remains to be seen what the Supreme Court will say in the end. Yeah, when you go to Arizona, for example, it's it's not uncommon to see in the window of businesses no guns allowed because they've got that default, as you suggest, that it is permitted unless the business posts otherwise. So um, given what the Supreme Court has said, now what the district judge has said, what do you see as the likely issues that are going to be the subject of appeal by the state uh, in the appellate court? Well, that's right. It's important to recognize, Larry, that this is not the final ruling on uh, the sensitive places that California has identified. This case is going to be appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It's likely to be uh, heard by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. There's also uh, a variety of other cases in California challenging these various sensitive places restrictions, and we could see judges going the other way on it. At the end of the day, however, we still just need more guidance from the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of the United States said last year that government could ban guns from sensitive places and and offered some examples like courthouses and government buildings and schools, um, but didn't provide much guidance beyond that little narrow list. And so uh, this is really one of the pressing questions. If we're going to allow people to carry guns on the streets, we need clarity as to what are the places where government can say, yes, but you can't bring a gun into this particular place. Uh, Judge Carney said also in his ruling, although the government may have some valid safety concerns, legislation regulating uh, concealed carry permit holders, the most responsible of law-abiding citizens seeking to exercise their Second Amendment rights, seems an odd and misguided place to focus to address those safety concerns. The judge went on in his writing, they've been through a a vigorous vetting and training process following their application to carry a concealed handgun. The challenged SB2 provisions unconstitutionally deprive this group of their constitutional right to carry a handgun in public for self-defense. So that a little different than the sensitive places portion of uh, the, the legislation that was passed and signed into law. How do you think judges in higher courts will respond to Judge Carney's uh, decision on that? 
Well, I think that's actually, you've pointed out what I think is the weakest part of uh, the judge's opinion here. He says California has extensively vetted people to, before they give them concealed carry permits and that these are the most responsible people around. However, the Supreme Court has said that California cannot extensively vet people before giving them concealed carry permits and that you have an individual right guaranteed by the Constitution uh, to uh, a concealed carry permit. Uh, and so um, uh, under the Supreme Court's reasoning, California can't engage in the same kind of extensive vetting that California used to do before the Supreme Court weighed in. Uh, and indeed, uh, the judge's reasoning would suggest that people do have a right to carry a gun into his own courtroom and to polling places and legislative assemblies if the only issue is whether the people have been vetted before they get a permit and whether there might be the potential for violence once they're there. So I think the judge's ruling and reasoning uh, will be second-guessed by the Court of Appeals. Uh, but as I said, at the end of the day, we need the Supreme Court to step back in and provide more clarity on the scope of the Second Amendment and the scope of government's authority to regulate guns. Now, I had thought California stiffened the requirements for training to receive a concealed carry permit. Didn't didn't they make um, make higher demands on on CCR uh, permit holders? Well, higher demands in some ways, like training, but the amount of training that's necessary is still pretty low, Larry. I mean, you need thousands more hours to get a certification to do um, uh, to become a hairdresser in California than you do to carry a gun on the streets. So the training requirement doesn't ensure that people who are carrying guns are responsible, law-abiding people at all. Um, and what the Supreme Court has said is that uh, you can't do things like only give uh, a right to carry a firearm to people who have shown uh, a particular need to carry a gun or a real fear of uh, being attacked. So uh, the Supreme Court has lowered the bar for allowing people to carry a concealed weapon. California has tried to raise it a little bit, uh, but it's still nothing like what it used to be in California. All right. Thank you so much, Adam Winkler. As always, we appreciate you being with us, Professor, and talking through this decision, which came down yesterday. Thanks so much, Larry. Professor of Law at UCLA, Adam Winkler. He specializes in constitutional law and gun policy. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we'll be talking about a recent state hearing looking at retail theft. We have dueling numbers at how prevalent retail theft is, whether it's even regularly reported, and what, if any, effect some of the criminal justice measures like Proposition 47 might have on whether it's spurred or not spurred retail theft. We'll take a look at that and hear competing narratives when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with two Southern California-based chocolatiers about their product that they make, you know, uh, artisanal chocolates, particularly popular this time of year, as are mass-produced ones as well. We're going to talk about how chocolate making is a big focus here in Southern California. That's coming up in a few minutes. But right now, we turn our attention to a recent hearing of the State Assembly's Select Committee on Retail Theft. They met to discuss the reported rise in property theft in the state. According to the Public Policy Institute of California, last year there was a 28% increase in shoplifting compared to the comparatively low rates during the pandemic. Still, the reported shoplifting rate remains about 8% below pre-pandemic levels. We're going to be talking about what, if any, effects uh, the criminal justice reform measures like Proposition 47 or not requiring bail has had on retail theft. Joining us to talk about what was laid out before legislators recently is Jeremy B. White, who covers California politics for Politico. Jeremy, always good to have you with us. Share with us um, the competing narratives that were presented. Very great to be here. I think I may need to buy some artisanal chocolate. Um, (laughs) You know, crime data and statistics are very complicated because there are a lot of players involved making arrests, making prosecutions. And so um, there are some folks who will point at some of the data you pointed at and say, yes, we have seen upticks in property crimes uh, and shoplifting, but that the levels remain below historic highs. You can even see some declines after Proposition 47 passed, which reduced the penalties for uh, theft and, and various property crimes. Uh, and then you will hear the counter narrative from, for example, major retailers who say the police are not bothering to make arrests. Prosecutors are not bothering to try to win convictions because the laws are not strong enough to do so. And so there's always a certain amount of finger pointing of one side saying, look at these numbers. Um, you know, there is not a there there. And the other side saying, well, the numbers lie because we don't have the tools to to get the true numbers that would be merited. Yeah, it would be interesting to hear if someone's actually set out to study unreported retail theft to try and quantify that, um, because that would be helpful to then get numbers that actually jibe, you know, so it's not an apple and orange comparison to what existed pre-pandemic if retailers were more consistently reporting or police were more consistently taking reports versus what we had now. But I'm assuming at this hearing there was there were no academics uh, able to lay that out. I think it's, um, you know, a lawmaker said something to the effect of, and I'm probably going to muddle this, um, what are the per- does perception match reality and does it matter? 
And I think it's a really important question when it comes to the politics of criminal justice, because ultimately, when voters are deciding whether to say, we call a district attorney or um, vote for uh, a state lawmaker who says they're going to get tougher on public safety than, than their predecessor, they're not going and examining the statistics and seeing the year-over-year rates. They're acting on a feeling of, of whether they feel safe and whether they feel that law enforcement is responsive in their communities. And if you look at the public polling, there has been a fairly notable increase in people who feel concerned about crime. How much of that is lived experience? How much of that is seeing smash and grabs on social media or going into their local pharmacy and seeing deodorant locked behind a case? It's hard to tease out which part is which. But clearly, the, po- the political conditions are there now where there's a lot of concern about that. And you are seeing politicians and players respond. You see it with this new committee that held a hearing on retail theft. And you see it with a proposed ballot initiative from prosecutors that is getting some backing from major retailers um, to crack on stuff. One of the things we see in Southern California, we've talked with uh, LAPG, LAPD chief uh, about it, is um, – the rise in in car thefts, and that's something, you know, typically because insurance is involved in that, reports are typically taken. We have seen dramatic increases in car thefts, at least in, in Southern California. And I, I, I wonder how much of a, of a proxy that is, or if that's just its own thing, totally independent of other types of, of property crimes. Was that at all raised in this, or was this really focused on retail theft? This committee is specifically devoted to retail crime, and so that was the sort of narrow focus of this hearing. Similarly, the ballot initiative I mentioned does not deal um, with uh, with car theft. Um, but I do think, again, when you're thinking about sort of the general mood of voters and how they would be inclined to vote on, say, a ballot initiative that gets tougher on crime, I think it's all part of the same picture. I mean – this is separate from, from violent crime, gun crime, and that type of thing, which um, we've seen increases in recent years. And I think when, when voters are, are making a decision on a criminal justice-related measure or elected official, they are thinking about all of it, even if the thing or the person they are voting on is, is more narrow um, that's it's, It just informs their decisions. We're talking with Jeremy B. White, reporter covering politics for Politico. Jeremy, you mentioned um, potential measure here. Um, would this be to to uh, modify Prop 47? Yes. And so uh, just um, as a refresher, I'm sure your listeners know, but Proposition 47 passed in 2014 reduce the penalties for drug and theft crimes. Um, There is a proposed ballot initiative. It is not yet qualified for the ballot, being backed by the State Prosecutors uh, Association. It's gotten some money from Walmart, which would tighten up some of um, those laws around property crimes, um, make it more easy to charge people with drug-related felonies, the argument being that that's a way to sort of compel people into treatment, whereas now there's not as much of a hammer to bring. And then a third component that's a little less directly related, it would make it easier to charge repeat fentanyl dealers with homicide. These are all ideas that have been brought forward in the legislature in recent years and have failed. Um, Any changes to Proposition 47 need to go back before voters. That sort of creates a higher bar. Um, But again, while these ideas have been tried and failed in the legislature, there was also a ballot initiative back in 2020, Prop 20, that would have tightened up Prop 47. Voters rejected that one decisively. 
I do think the political climate has shifted um, since 2020, and that could create the conditions, whether it's for this ballot initiative to go before voters and maybe pass, whether it's for the legislature to do something that, that addresses these problems in a way that, that maybe neutralizes that ballot threat. I think there's a lot of moving pieces here, but the bigger context is um, that there are voter concerns about crime, and I think elected officials, including Democrats, recognize that and they see that this is a political issue that needs to be addressed. We're talking with Politico's Jeremy B. White, who covers California politics. Also with us, El Dorado County District Attorney and former president of the California District Attorneys Association, Vern Pearson. Mr. Pearson, thank you for being with us again. Um, I want to get to this issue of of, uh, retail theft and whether it really is above historic levels. We certainly see more products that are locked up and and things like that to try and prevent theft, but also there were fewer employees at many of those places uh, to deter such theft. So how how do you think we can get accurate numbers to see what's really going on? Well, uh, thank you for having me. And and I, I was listening uh, you brought up motor vehicle theft, and, and it's it's important to note that motor vehicle theft is the only type of property crime that is accurately reported. And as you alluded to, that is because insurance companies require people filing an insurance claim uh, to, to have a police report taken. And, and uh, with that in mind, it's important to note that according to the National Insurance Vehicle Theft in the state of California, is at a rate double the state of Florida and 70% higher than uh, uh, the state of uh, uh, Texas. And since the passage of, of uh, Prop 47 has gone up by 33%. Um, so, but but in terms of just specifically on, on theft overall, I would use and point to Rob Bonta's own numbers. Um, I understand at the hearing that his wife, Mia Bonta, asked for specific data so I will rely on Rob Bonta's data, which is um, the the total value of stolen goods in the state of California uh, in 2014, the year that Prop 47 passed, uh, was estimated at 2.1 billion dollars. Uh, uh, in 2022, the last year uh, that he has reported that it has gone up 96 percent to four point uh, almost 4.3 billion dollars in uh, total value of stolen goods. 96% increase in less than nine years. That is a uh, far outpacing inflation. And that is probably the most representative data that we that we have because of the the, the significant underreporting of most property crimes. Well, I was going to ask, is that even accurate, though? Because if more property crimes were reported in 2014 than are, are reported currently, is that $4.3 billion accurate? Well, it's probably not accurate. It's probably, again, an underreporting, but it is probably the most accurate number that we have. And uh, we see Sheriff Jim Cooper here in Sacramento, for example. Uh, he has been, over the last several months, to try to uh, demonstrate this underreporting. Uh, they do stings in various stores. And they look at uh, uh, what types of uh, uh, crimes are actually occurring versus what would get reported. And, and we know that the numbers, it, it's just vastly underreported. And 
um, it, it, which which causes the, uh, the 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 supporters, the proponents of Prop Forty Seven, uh, to be able to gone up that much. And I would say, you know, essentially they're saying, don't believe your lying eyes. Um, but we're seeing more and more news reports like this uh, guy that out of uh, uh, Contra Costa County, uh, Jesse Otero, who's been arrested 90 times. He's a, a transient. Uh, uh, he's a homeless person who has been arrested in, in Contra Costa County 90 times, mo for the most part, uh, misdemeanor uh, property crimes. He gets arrested in his eye, uh, uh, simply cited out okay. and released. Yeah. Typically doesn't appear. I mean, the question is, though, how much of it are these extreme cases like the individual you cite? How much of it is social media images which create an effect uh, for people to see it as more pervasive than it really is? Let me bring into the conversation Christine Soto DeBerry, who's the founder and executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance, um, which backs criminal justice reform. She testified at the state assembly hearing earlier this week. Thank Thank you very much, Ms. DeBerry, for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be here with you. So uh, share with us your perception of, of what's happening in retail and other property crime. Are we seeing a dramatic increase in recent years? So I think what's happening in the retail space is we're seeing a different kind of theft, right? We've all seen it on the news where there's a group of people running into a store and smashing display cases and grabbing massive quantities of merchandise, very different than shoplifting, right? Uh, and that has caused concern for retailers, for shoppers, for the average citizen, and very understandably. So I think the important work for us to do is to talk about what are solutions to that kind of activity. And the good news is we have a lot of tools already uh, and they were not impacted by Prop 47. So the, the effort to conflate what we're experiencing with a ballot measure we passed 10 years ago is not accurate and it's not responsible and we won't find the solution there. If we want to solve the issue of retail theft, where people are taking massive quantities of goods, obviously not for their own personal use, they're clearly to resell, right? Somebody is not taking 300 pairs of jeans to rotate one pair a day for the next year. They're taking them because they can resell them. So the question for us in law enforcement is, where are they being resold and how do we eliminate that secondary market? The the truth of the matter is, in 2023, those items are being resold online at retailers like Amazon, eBay, Facebook marketplaces, and we need to shut down that black market if we want to have any hope of curbing the kinds of thefts we're seeing. Because if we just focus at the very bottom of this pyramid and arrest every person running out of the store, we will drain our state coffers and we will not solve the problem. We have to be smarter about how we solve crime problems in 2023. We know better, we need to do better, and we need to stop playing in the margins around punishment and look at prevention and higher upstream solutions. Uh, there have been a number of high-profile arrests. In fact, just before we went on the air today, I, I got a press release from the California Highway Patrol, which has headlined CHP arrest Los Angeles woman in million-dollar organized retail theft ring. CHP mm -hmm. alleges that there was a warehouse in the city of Paramount and a retail business on Whittier Boulevard in Los Angeles that was full 
of, of stolen property and tools to remove anti-theft devices from property that had been taken, and their estimates are that over a million dollars of merchandise were recovered in, in this arrest. I, I don't know if this is part of Governor Newsom's uh, deployment of additional CHP officers to fight retail theft, but um, but Christine Soto DeBerry, that's an example, I think, of what you're talking about of existing tools. Exactly right. And that is a result of those funds that were very wisely put towards this problem so that we can do higher level investigations. We do not have the money to have police officers in front of every single store in this state. We simply cannot afford that. So we have to think about solutions that reduce the theft in other ways. When we catch people, there should be accountability 100%. But if we want to solve the problem and give relief to retailers and shoppers, we have to look at shutting down that market. A million dollars in a storage locker. Can you imagine? Well, and <laughs> That is the person we need to be focused on. And I have conducted these investigations when I was in the San Francisco DA's office, and we found theft rings that ran up and down the state of California as far as Texas and Hawaii. And when we were able to remove those high-level players that have the storage bins with over a million dollars of goods, we saw drops in that crime. So imagine what we could do if we actually tightened up the marketplace and made Amazon verify that people selling on their platform have acquired those goods legitimately. Ms. DeBerry, we, we, well, let me just interject, though, that we we do hear consistent reports from retailers that they're seeing an increase. I know the mm-hmm. study that the Retail Association put out, they retracted because the, the numbers were not accurate that were used. Nonetheless, they say, regardless, we've seen a significant increase and that in many cases, reports aren't being even being taken because yeah. even with multi-time retail offenders, they're not being held. They're there aren't criminal consequences to what they're doing. So what, what's your response to what retailers are saying is going on? Yes. So there are consequences available, but it does require that the police come and make an arrest. And it does require that they send that to the prosecutor's office so there can be a prosecution. We do have tools. When we're talking about low-level shoplifting, that has a punishment of up to six months in the county jail. When we're talking about higher end thefts where people are taking over $950 of goods or ransacking a store, those are felony offenses that carry up to three years in prison. We absolutely have the tools. The recent case in Los Angeles, the Saks Fifth Avenue that was uh, ransacked, DA Gascon has charged the two people that were caught there with two robberies, which has a five-year maximum, two counts of grand theft, and two counts of conspiracy. So there are tools available, but it does require police to show up, take a report, conduct an investigation, and hopefully make an arrest for us to use those tools. We're talking with Christine Soto DeBerry, who is the founder and executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance. She mentioned that she worked uh, in the office of uh, former San Francisco District Attorney uh, George Gascon, who's now, of course, L.A. County D.A., and Jason Bodine in San Francisco as well. She was the former chief of staff and also a chief of staff for Gavin. Newsom when he was mayor of San Francisco. Uh, Vern Pearson, former president of the California DA's Association, currently El Dorado County DA, your response to what Ms. DeBerry is saying that, that, yeah, it's a problem, but this is a job for law enforcement. It's, It's not Prop 47 that's the problem. 
Well, I mean, frankly, it's it's silly. Um, organized retail theft is a problem, but to pretend as though uh, uh, the Prop 47 has not brought havoc on the state of California, as I said, it's just silly. I sat next to George Gascon in Newport Beach at a conference when he did a presentation about this type of stuff nine years ago. And I remember saying to him very clearly, uh, this is a giant social science experiment that you're conducting on the state of California, and we will see what the outcome is. Are you going to take responsibility when we have uh, open-air drug use the, the way we do, because we have decriminalized uh, hardcore drug? Are you going to take responsibility for the lawlessness in terms of property crimes that, that, that uh, come from this? And it's exactly what has happened, and it's all interconnected. We have had homelessness spike in the state of California by 51%, and it is directly related to uh, uh, Prop 47, the hardcore drug use that is rampant in the state of California, as well as uh, uh, the retail theft that is occurring throughout the state of California. So you think that the, that the individuals who are living on the streets and are addicted, that if they were sentenced to time in jail or in prison, that that they they would not be living on the street, but then they'd be well, they'd be addicts in prison, right? Uh, no, they wouldn't, because in, in our approach to dealing with this, uh, that we lost because of Prop 47 was the drug courts, and the drug courts were very effective of saying, giving the judge the power in a collaborative court to say, you have a choice: you can do 60 days in jail, or you can go to rehab. If you go to rehab, uh, you, your case will be dismissed. That is the initiative uh, uh, that uh, the journalist from Politico was referring to, is to say, we create a treatable felony. Um, okay. where you're a multiple offender. You have a treatable felony where you can go to rehab and get off the drugs because it is all interrelated. Uh, let me just go back to Christine Soder to very quick final word. Um, are are you open to any sort of a compromise to to avoid an initiative that would change Prop Forty Seven? Listen, we're we're interested in finding solutions to the problem. I, this is not ideological for us. The point here is increasing punishments is not going to solve the problem that community is coming to us with, and it's incumbent on us to be honest about that. To suggest that homelessness and drug addiction is a result of Prop Forty Seven is irresponsible. It is irresponsible. We should be honest in this dialogue about what will solve the problems. It will not be solved by increasing the punishments. We had theft and drug use when we had felony punishments for the same kind of conduct, and it existed long before that at higher rates in right. the 1990s than it does now. So let's look for real solutions. Let's I... stop playing in the margins and look at actual solutions to the crime. I want to thank you both for being with us. That's Christine Soto DeBerry, founder and executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance, Vern Pearson, El Dorado County District Attorney and the former president of the California DA's Association. And our thanks to frequent air talk guest from Politico, reporter covering California politics, Jeremy B. White. It's air talk on LAS 89.3 in the holiday spirit. We turn our attention to locally handcrafted chocolate. Artisanal chocolate. We have two purveyors of it here in Southern California. We'll find out how they go about the making and marketing of their product when we come back in just 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. 
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So often when we think of chocolate, we think of, of the artisanal ones coming from Europe or even Central South America. But right here in Southern California, we've got some great artisanal chocolate being made. And we're so pleased to have two chocolatiers joining us to talk about their craft and how they try and differentiate the chocolate that they make from some of the others that are available on the market, either mass-produced chocolates or other artisanal chocolates that are available. We're very pleased to have with us the third-generation owner of Mignon Chocolate with locations in Pasadena and Glendale, Joe uh, Terpagosian. Thank you, Joe, for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So I was telling you during the break, my wife's a speech pathologist for the Glendale School District, and with your Glendale location there, she's had some parents who, as thank you gifts, have brought some of your chocolate, and she's brought them home. So I've had the chance to to try them. They are absolutely terrific. But I read on one of the boxes of your chocolates or a flyer with them your family story, which is remarkable. Share with us just real briefly, because we're tight on time, how you got into the chocolate business. Well, the family history goes back to to my grandfather and um, he start, he was a baker originally and um, eventually everything started in uh, Ukraine and during the first first world war I mean world war he was um, arrested because he he was hiding some gold in the backyard and uh, due to that he was sent to Siberia in an exile and the family moved to Iran in 1934 had to start over they started all over so six six years later he joined the family and they re I mean everything started all over again and my uncle and my dad brought up the business all the way to the uh, and present when did, time, yes. Yeah, and when when did your family immigrate to uh, Southern California? Well, it was in 1988 that I came to visit my grandparents here in California. And my grandmother said, I'll buy you a car if you stay. So that was it. And you've been here, here ever since. That's so right. your your chocolates have 
influences uh, from the culture that you come from and you know share with us some of the the treats that you make I'll maybe sample as you tell me about them but um, ones that are signature chocolates of mignon okay our signature chocolate is the chocolate covered orange peels um, that we've been making them since I would say for the past 50 60 years Basically, it's a long process. We get the oranges and uh, do everything from scratch. And that has been our family recipe forever. It's incredible. That's... I'm. You brought <laughs> chocolates. Our second guest also sent. We have some chocolates of, of hers to share. It's, it's incredible. I also love, they're so beautiful. How did you come up with the designs for the top of the chocolates? Because they're, they're works of art. I mean, like every business, chocolate business is also evolving. We use technology. We use some transfer sheet methods. We use some colored cocoa butter sprays, which give us that color and um, the appearance that makes it. <laughs> so, for example, good. one of your chocolates has this beautiful green striping on it. What flavor is this? That is a Cuban mojito. It has a dark chocolate shell with a dark chocolate ganache infused with lime and mint. Incredible. And that gives you the mojito scent. It's so dense, the, the filling of that chocolate. So right. what, is that, what is that inside the, the layer of the dark chocolate? That is called uh, ganache, which is chocolate and cream. Which you sometimes see on cakes. And, yeah, right. right. We're talking with Joe Turagosian, Turpagosian, who's third-generation owner of Mignon Chocolates with locations in Pasadena and Glendale. I'd love to hear from you as an AirTalk listener. If you have a favorite artisanal chocolate that you'd like to share, please give us a call. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us your pick at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We have two chocolatiers from Southern California who are doing artisanal work, but I know there are others. If you have one that you would like to tout, please share it with us at 866-893-5722. Also with us, Valerie Gordon, chef and owner of Valerie Confections with locations in Glendale and Echo Park. Valerie, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. How did you get into chocolates? Um, I started making chocolates and desserts when I was a very young child at home. Um, I was just always really taken by the feeling that you get when you walk into a chocolate shop or a bakery. And I think that there is just, there are few places in the world that make you feel more excited, a greater level of anticipation, or just like the most marvelous feeling of decadence. And so I was always just enraptured by this idea of gifting treats to people, and it turned into a career. Well, and um, you mentioned about you love the smell of it, the whole environment. When you're making chocolates, does just the whole space smell of chocolate? It really does. And it's crazy because you, I think you become slightly immune to it in a way, because it's the aroma that you're always taking in. But when you walk into our chocolate production room, it really does just 
take over your olfactory senses on a very high level. Whenever visitors come through or people are touring the space, they're like, oh my God, the smell. And it's, you know, it's, it's heartwarming not to be cheesy, but it's heartwarming. It makes <laughs> you happy. It makes you feel excited um, and very, very alive. So it's a great thing. Daniel and Van Nuys called to say, Larry, you're an evil man for eating chocolate on the air while the rest of us can. I I admit, I'm very sorry about that. We are heading into the holidays, though. And how would I know if I didn't sample the chocolates that we're talking about? Speaking of which, I just opened one of the boxes of Valerie Confections. And this has a a little bit of of salt on the top of it. It's a a square, um, uh, a rather uh, thin square with salt on the top. What is this, Valerie? That's almond fleur de sel toffee. That is the flavor that we started our company with almost 20 years ago. And toffee historically has been a very casual confection, like you frequently see it um, in sort of a bark style or, you know, in in sort of drugstore chocolate bars like almond roca, heath, things like that. And when we started the company, I thought, what if we took toffee and made it luxury? And what if we applied flavors to toffee that traditionally exist in things like what Mignon does, which is flavored ganache? And so I took that idea and applied it to toffee and put it in a pretty box. And, and the, that was the of our company. And I was going to say, Valerie, the texture of the toffee inside is wonderful. It's just Thank because you. you don't want it to be too hard. You want to break a tooth mm-hmm. on it. You don't want it to be mushy. You hit the texture perfectly. And the salt on top, along with the chocolate coating and the, the toffee, is absolutely great. 866-893-5722. We're talking about the great crafters of chocolate here in Southern California. Joe Terpagosian, third-generation owner of Mignon Chocolate in locations in Pasadena and Glendale, and Valerie Gordon, chef and owner of Valerie Confections. They're located in Glendale and Echo Park. And I have to say, what I've tried so far from both is is wonderful. 866-893-5722. So Robert in Redondo Beach says, Larry, you're a cool man. Describing the chocolate and eating it on the air is cool. My mouth is salivating. Can you repeat the name of the chocolatier? Yes, it's Mignon Chocolate and Valerie Confections are both with us. Chris in Torrance says, there's a place called Marsada in Old Torrance. It's wonderful. Any of their dark chocolates are delicious. They're bean to bar with no preservatives. Chris, thank you for sharing it. We'll be back with more in just one minute. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling in the world of my creation. One of my favorite air talk guests of all time, the late, great Gene Wilder. What a man, what a tremendous actor, and that, of course, 
uh, from Willy Wonka, the first of the film adaptations of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the terrific Roll Doll children's book. We're talking about chocolatiers of Southern California, the uh, greats of artisanal chocolates, uh, incredible samples that I have of our two guests, Valerie Gordon of Valerie Confections and Joe Terpagosian, third-generation owner of Mignon Chocolate. Let's talk with Catherine in Ventura. Catherine, I, I hope you've withstood the heavy rains up there overnight. Your property okay? Very rainy, and we had some flood watches and some tornado watches in the middle of the night. But I think for the most part, we're, we're doing okay for now. All right, glad to hear it. So your favorite chocolates? My favorite chocolate is chocolates. It's, um, a cho- he's a French chocolatier, and he's up in Carpinteria, and we drive all the way there just for the chocolate. Oh, it that's, that's amazing. Cool. Do you have a favorite of Chocolat du uh, Calibrasson that they offer? I really like the, not everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's the one that I haven't had that I didn't love. I like the passion fruit. There's a, he actually has a white chocolate with passion fruit, but then he also has, um, oh gosh, mint chocolate, chocolate ganache with chocolate on it and, uh, chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. It, it sounds great. Catherine, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Joe, I want to come back to you and ask about some of the other chocolates that you, that you do that are reflective of your background. You said your family um, fled Ukraine and then came from Iran to the United States. So we, of your culture, what's reflected in your chocolates? Um, basically, each flavor represents a unique um, experience where it's coming from. For example, in the box that you have, yeah. we have that rose petal one Absolutely in dark beautiful. chocolate. Yeah. That, for example, it's a Middle Eastern combination. Uh, you can find um, um, in-house roasted pistachio along with the rose water uh, ganache inside, mm. and we top that and make it beautiful with those dried rose petals. How do you get the rose petals to adhere? Is it you put it on when the chocolate's still moist, or how do you do that? When we put the final layer on the chocolate, when the chocolate's still in a liquid form, we just sprinkle those uh, rose petals and they stick to them perfectly. Yeah, it looks so into like each one was individually. <laughs> it's done by hand. Yeah, I'm not surprised because <laughs> it looks it looks like that. Um so the the rose water gives it that unique flavor that's right. that's so great. We're talking with Joe Terpagosian, third-generation owner of Mignon Chocolate. Uh, Janelle in Pasadena says, I prefer dark chocolate over anything else. My go-to is Mignon. They're right in my neighborhood. I use them as Christmas gifts, baby shower gifts, and I use them as party favors at my own wedding. They even help me put it together. So you fan there and Janelle in Pasadena. Alice in Sierra Madre asks about the use of fair trade chocolate that would be grown, um, the cacao, and, and processed um, under humane conditions with fair compensation. Valerie Gordon, can you speak at all to fair trade chocolate? So we 
Um, fair trade chocolate is a big conversation for sure. It's sort of chocolates, you know, chocolate industry is sort of like the diamond industry, honestly. I think they're pretty comparable insofar as um, the people who are harvesting, how they're treated. Um, we use chocolates that are from companies where it is our understanding that uh, everyone involved in the process is treated humanely, that it's fair trade chocolate. Um, it really was sort of a black market industry for a long time where there was a lot of slave labor and some really unfortunate things in the uh, background of the industry. And I think a lot of strides have been made uh, over the last couple of decades to improve those situations. And there's a lot more consciousness around it today, certainly. Well, Valerie, I'm looking forward later to trying more of the chocolate uh, of yours that I've been provided. And it's interesting, the partnerships you've got, like John with John and Vinny's, you've got Nutella Bar with them, uh, Super Choco Food that you do with Commune. <laughs> I love this with, a, with the hippie-style uh, artwork yeah. that goes with that. And Peppermint Bark with dark and white chocolate, handmade peppermint candy from Valerie confections of glendale and echo park valerie gordon thank you for joining us we appreciate it thank you so much and happy holidays to you to you too great week thank you and joe uh, turpagosian of mignon chocolate of pasadena glendale thank you happy holidays to you thank you for it's, having me it's air talk back in a moment Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. I have that lingering taste of chocolate from our last segment. Man, Matt D'Angelo Antonio, our senior producer, also enjoying some of those artisanal chocolates from our last. Those are so, so good. We had some recommendations come in after we concluded this segment. Allison in Culver City and Sherry in Pasadena both touted and Sons chocolate in Beverly Hills. Sherry saying, if you've not heard of them, look them up. Incredible. And Allison in Culver City said, each of their chocolates looks like a stunning, edible work of art. They also customized the box with a drawing of the business. So it's quite a presentation. So thank you for that recommendation as we talk about artisanal chocolate in this holiday season here in Southern California. We now turn our attention to uh, something that isn't beautiful, like chocolate that's ugly and vile, and that is uh, racist and anti-Semitic flyers that have been distributed in some neighborhoods throughout Southern California. In response, 
Last Friday, the L.A. City Council approved a proposal to look at how litter laws could be used to prohibit the dissemination of flyers that contained hate speech. The motion calls specific attention to anti-Semitic literature. This proposal comes amid worries about increasing anti-Semitism that we saw even before the start of the war in Gaza and has intensified since. Councilmember Bob Blumenfield, who represents the 3rd District of the West San Fernando Valley, sponsored the measure, which was unanimously endorsed by his council colleagues. Councilmember Blumenfield, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, Without um, giving undue attention to specific content in these uh, terrible flyers that are distributed, Please give us sort of a general description of the themes that are contained in them. Council member, you there? We apparently lost him. We will try. No, no, I'm, I'm here. Sorry. Yeah. They, they, the, uh, these flyers are very different in different, you know, we've seen anti-black flyers. We've seen anti-LGBT flyers, anti-Armenian flyers, anti-Jewish flyers. What they all have in common is they are, promoting hate and they are targeting individuals because of their perceived characteristics. They're being sent into uh, to the homes of someone who is Jewish or gay or um, Armenian or Asian because of those characteristics in an attempt to uh, to intimidate them or, you know, and that's that's what they have in common. And, and you know, unfortunately, the the various types are ver- uh, of flyers can be as wild and different under the sun as you can imagine, but they do have that common intent. I know that some of the anti-Semitic ones reference anti-Semitic texts of the past and quote from them or have drawings that are caricatures and exaggerations of of people from different groups. Um, and as you said, that they are, are varied in the groups that they targeted, but there's been a tremendous rise in, in anti-Semitic themed ones. I'd like to hear from AirTalk listeners, if you had one of these flyers thrown on your driveway, distributed overnight in your community, I'd like to hear from you what that experience is like and what, if anything, that you think local government should do about it. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. I'd like to hear from you what the experience is of getting these kinds of flyers with these sorts of of, uh, religiously, racially, ethnically targeted hate that is contained on them. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Now, there's a variety of different material, um, which is, is uh, you know, without threat, that gets distributed on people's driveways or front porch, from cards to tree service, to junk cleanup, to landscaping, that's very common for people in the city of Los Angeles to get. Is it possible to use an anti-litter law in a case like this and not have it apply to every kind uh, of um, solicitation that might occur? I, I think it is. And, and I also think that you know what we've asked the city attorney to look at is not simply the anti-littering laws, but it's, it's the notion that when someone sends a flyer 
in, to direct it at someone's home or or if they you know tie a rope in a noose and they put it on someone's doorstep that's more than littering uh you know i i think i hope we can all agree on that that it's it's not simply littering when you do that and so the idea is what can we do as a city to protect people you know our our one of our main functions is public safety to protect people from those kind of hate flyer attacks and whether it's trespass laws or littering laws or some other means uh the purpose of my motion is to really get that conversation going because i know it's tricky you know the first amendment issues are important to me are important to to most americans and so how do we how do we do that how do we protect people uh but at still allow people to 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 spew the hate that they wish to spew because that is their right as an american but to distinguish between when you're you're spewing hate generally and when you're targeting that hate uh, specifically towards someone uh, in their home, especially. Bob Blumenfield with us. He's Los Angeles City Council member, represents the 3rd District, and he presented uh, this proposal for the L.A. City Attorney's Office and city staff to look at potential ways of responding to hate flyers that have been distributed in some communities of Los Angeles and that we understand have been spread in other communities here in Southern California as well. Huntington Beach, I believe, is a is a place where some neighborhoods have had flyers like like this that that have been distributed. Also with us, the dean of UC Berkeley School of Law, Erwin Chemerinsky. Dean Chemerinsky, as always, we appreciate you being with us. Um, is there a role for local government to to fight this kind of vile communication? There is a role, but it has to be done consistent with the First Amendment. I applaud what Council Blumfeld is trying to do. I think it's well intentioned. The problem with what he's described is that what will be prohibited will be defined by the content of the speech. And the Supreme Court has said that generally laws aren't allowed when it's based on the content of the speech. In fact, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said even hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. So I think the ordinance will be much more likely constitutional if it is written in a content-neutral way, such as you suggested, limiting the leafleting or the littering generally. In terms of the rope example, free speech isn't absolute. If there is a true threat, then it's not speech protected by the First Amendment. Putting a rope on someone's door like a noose, I think that would be regarded as a true threat. Mass distribution of leaflets, much less likely to be regarded by a court as a true threat. In the case of, of the noose example, is that something you, you would still have to adjudicate in court and, and hear a jury's determination of if the noose is a threat? Or do you think under law that would be taken de facto as a threat? Of course, if someone was prosecuted for it, it would have to be proven in court that it met the standard for a true threat. And the Supreme Court has given us a standard. They said it's a true threat is someone acts with a conscious disregard of a substantial risk that perceived as a threat of violence. Putting a noose on someone's door, I think, meets the definition of true threat. Mass littering in a neighborhood, leaflets, I don't think it would meet the standard the Supreme Court has set out 
for a true threat. When you have, and let's take anti-Semitic literature as an example, which targets a, a group of people, which describes them as a threat to the country and makes um, wild claims about damage done by that group of people, when does that cross over into being threatening? Because it's human nature that someone, you know, picking that up in the morning, um, you know, in a in a baggie on their driveway and sees that is going to feel threatened by that. They will, but that's not enough to get outside of First Amendment protection. The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that hate speech, anti-Semitic Islamophobic speech are generally protected by the First Amendment. We certainly get a conversation about whether they should be protected, but they are. And so there's standards. If speech rises to the level of incitement of violence, and there's a legal test for it, then it's not protected by the First Amendment. If it rises to the level of harassment in a workplace or an educational context, it's not protected by the First Amendment. And if it is a true threat directed at somebody, it's not protected speech. But the problem is, if we're talking about mass leafleting in literal laws, then when they're written in a content-based way like this, I think they're not likely to meet First Amendment scrutiny. If this was a personalized characterization, so someone writes a note, you so-and-so, you're part of this group that's blah, blah, blah. Is that, could, could that meet that test for um, being a threat? By itself, what you describe wouldn't be, but there are certainly contexts in which it would. If somebody sends me a note and says, because you're Jewish, we're going to come and kill you. Yeah, that would rise to the level of a true threat. Again, the standard, I know it's, it sounds like legalese is, did the speaker act with a conscious disregard of a substantial risk that the speech will be perceived as a threat of violence? And it has to be not just generally so, but it has to be specific that that person would perceive it as a threat of violence. Dean Chemerinsky, do you know if there have been any other jurisdictions that have tried to put limits in against this kind of leafleting? With regard to leafleting, there are jurisdictions that have adopted laws that prohibit speech targeted at any person's home. And there's a Supreme Court case from a number of years ago, Frisbee versus Schultz, where there was targeting of doctors and health personnel who provided abortions. And the Supreme Court said there can be laws that limit the targeting of a specific person, but I've never seen an ordinance as broad as this one. I welcome listener calls. If you're someone who has received these hateful flyers, I'd be interested in hearing your response to it and what, if anything, you did in following up on them. And be interested as well to hear your questions, both for council member Bob Blumenfield and for legal scholar Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of Berkeley Law. 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Councilmember Blumenfield, your response to the legal analysis of Dean Chemerinsky. Uh, well, and I appreciate it. I have great respect for the dean and I've been a fan of his for a long time. But I, I think that you can't uh, treat general speech the same as speech that is or, or flyers that are targeted to someone's home. That there is a difference between what you can say out in the public square and when you foist the, those comments and target them because of somebody's characteristics to their private residence, there have been laws. Florida has a law, uh, their Florida Bill 269, in terms of that prohibits 
uh, people from distributing onto private property material for the purpose of intimidating or threatening uh, or harassing their owners. Uh, those there, there's been a number of other laws that are that are out there that are specifically targeted toward when those that hate flyering is going to someone's home as different than what you can just say out in the public square. I, I think everyone has a right to say what they want to say, but you also, as an individual, uh, have a right to be pr protected from harassment and intimidation. And whether it's a noose or it's a picture of a noose or it's a burning cross or a picture of a burning cross on a flyer or uh, or other uh, uh, you know images or words that are designed to harass and intimidate someone, uh, that has to be taken into consideration. These are not just randomly thrown out on people's homes. They're targeted toward a Jewish community, toward an Armenian community, and they're targeted with a purpose. It is not simply uh, littering. I think I hope we can all agree that it is it is more than littering when you when you put this kind of hate and you target it towards someone in particular or the, or some community in particular. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to argue that the impact of it is is comparable to to littering. Obviously, this is far more serious for the recipients of it. Um, Councilmember, I know you you have to go. Can you spend a couple more minutes or do you have to absolutely go at this point? No, I, I, I'm, I'm here with you. Oh, OK. All right. I appreciate it. It's, it's about time, place and matter. It's not just about the speech itself. OK. Uh, you know, and, and when you talk about, you know, targeting someone's home, you're 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 putting that limitation not on the speech itself, but on on the time, place, and manner of that speech. Well, we'll get to Erwin uh, Chemerinsky's analysis of that. And again, your questions for our guests at 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. If you've been the recipient of some of these hateful flyers that have been distributed in residential communities, I'd like to hear what you saw how you responded to it, and what you think the best way to deal with it is. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up, we'll be talking with our TV critics. It's TV Thursday. And we're going to hear what our critics have to say about a wide range of series. Also, because it's our last TV talk of the year, I want to hear from you later this hour. What's the best television that you saw? And it doesn't have to be a new series. It can be something that you rediscovered, you know, particularly during the writers and sag after a strike where there wasn't as much new content being released. So maybe you went back and caught up with something, but you want to tout about how great it is. Even if you've come to it late, we'll talk about that later this hour on Air Talk. Right now, we're talking about the leafleting of flyers in communities that target particular individuals based on religion race or ethnicity. The L.A. City Council has voted to ask the city attorney and city staff to look into what sorts of restrictions on that uh, racist or um, anti-Semitic uh, flyering that's going on. We're talking with Bob Blumenfield, L.A. City Council member of the 3rd West San Fernando Valley District, who uh, brought this proposal to his colleagues on the council, and Erwin Chemerinsky, the dean of the UC Berkeley School of, of Law. Uh, dean Chemerinsky, your response to what the council member just said about, you know, when it goes to someone's house, it, it is different. It is targeted. The Supreme Court has said that time, place, and manner restrictions, which the councilman refers to, 
have to be content neutral. It can't be based on the subject matter or the viewpoint of the speech. And that's why when 360 college universities adopted hate speech codes, everyone to come to court without exception was declared unconstitutional. I applaud what the councilman is trying to do. Councilman, I would be glad to work with you and your staff in the city attorney's office as a way to write the ordinance that is content neutral, but still achieves what you want. But I worry that if it's focused on the content of the speech, the odds are it won't survive in court. Joining us is Linda Othenen-Gerard, who for 20 years was the senior producer of Air Talk and a good friend of mine, someone whose counsel I value so much. She's a Los Feliz resident, and her neighborhood was leafleted with anti-Semitic flyers. Linda, thanks so much. I appreciate you being willing to come on and, and talk about this. Um, share with us just the general nature of what was contained in these flyers. Well, Larry, this happened about a year ago, I believe. It could have been a little bit longer. Um, we found flyers in plastic bags. With they, Bags were sealed. There were rocks inside, I guess, to keep the flyers from, you know, flying around. And these were, there were five or six flyers in each package. And the headline on the flyer was, uh, Jewish people uh, uh, control the media entertainment business. And then the flyers pictured uh, heads of major media and entertainment companies in a, in a Star David with their names kind of plastered over it. And uh, it was horrible. It was shocking. I, I, I had never seen anything like that except in movies about the Holocaust or history books or, you know, articles. There's anything that. Linda, your, your signal is, is breaking up, but we did hear about how shocking it was and that you'd never seen this, this kind, these kinds of images and, and these kinds of statements, um, anything like this before. Um, if we have got your connection a little bit better, I wanted to ask, did you talk with your neighbors at all about this? Well, we did, and everybody kind of felt the same. They, they couldn't believe it. There had never been anything like that in our neighborhood uh, to our knowledge. And uh, these weren't distributed on specific, it seemed like they weren't distributed to specific homes, but just left along a street in people's neighborhoods. And um, yeah, it, it was very disturbing, very, very disturbing. Linda, I appreciate you sharing with us your experience for someone who's received something like this. Linda Othen and Gerard, uh, for 20 years, senior producer of, of Air Talk, talking about what happened. We're at 866 893 5722. Scott and Redondo Beach emailed, so a single noose is uh, hate speech. I think what he means is can be taken as a can be taken as a threat. But what if there were a hundred or a thousand nooses that were put out overnight? Does that become a general uh, general speech no longer considered to be a threat? Anyone waking up to the noose may not know that a hundred were placed, so they would feel reasonably threatened. So in a way, as Scott says, I think a flyer um, feels targeted to an individual. That's Scott in Redondo Beach. Dean Chemerinsky, your re response to his point. Sure. So much depends on what's done. If the nooses are 
spread around the streets, put in front of people's homes, but not on their property. I don't think the law can prohibit that. But if a noose is tacked to somebody's door, I think that that can be regarded as a true threat. I don't know that a leaflet like that would be regarded by the courts as meeting the standard for a true threat that's unprotected by the First Amendment, which I think if there were a way to write this in a more content-neutral manner, it's more likely to have held in court. Dana in South Pasadena emailed, why aren't hate speech and hate flyers that encourage groups of people to hate and threaten others an actual threat? What would it take to make this illegal? This is leading to the downfall of our society on a related front in regard to college campuses. Why does free speech have to hold there when it comes to hate? At our workplace, we have civility rules. We would be fired for the kinds of things that are said on college campus protests. That isn't considered limits on free speech in the workplace, it's considered rules. Uh, well, there's some legal differences, particularly if you're talking about a public institution, and most private institutions have adopted those public institution rules in which the First Amendment applies protecting free speech. That's different than a private business. For example, I work for LAist, and I can be punished for my speech, which is deemed detrimental to the organization or the mission of the, the organization. So I have a government-protected free speech right. I'm not going to go to jail for it. I could be fired for, for certain things. Things that I said. Dean Chemerinsky, you want to respond to Dana's point? I think there's a strong argument that we'd be better off if hate speech wasn't protected. But it is under the First Amendment because it expresses an idea and a viewpoint. Under the First Amendment, all ideas and views are constitutionally protected. Also, what we haven't talked about is the difficulty of defining what we mean by hate speech in a way that's not unconstitutionally vague and overbroad. And we've seen this on campus with certain slogans, with some saying they're hate speech and the other's saying it's just a political message. Yeah, and who determines that? I think that's challenging. Yeah, I mean, the, there's also the argument in terms of protecting hate speech that it's better to know who holds views like this that are so repugnant than to have it underground. And um, the argument, you know, wouldn't wouldn't you rather know if there's someone you're exposed to that they actually think that way? Dean Chemerinsky? I think that's right. That's why our society has made the choice that hate speech is constitutionally protected, where almost every European country outlaws hate speech. And the question is, are we better off having all ideas and views, even repugnant ones being expressed, or are we better off outlawing them? I think what Councilman Blumenthal is trying to do is something much more narrow to prevent targeted hate speech at particular individuals. And I think the question is, how to do it in a constitutional way. Dean Chemerinsky, as always, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it so much. Very happy holiday season to you and your family. Thank you. Thank you. Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, Berkeley Law, and Bob Blumenfield, L.A. City Council member. His third district represents the West San Fernando Valley. He introduced the measure to have the city attorney and city staff look uh, at what they could do to respond to the hate flyers that have been distributed in a number of Los Angeles neighborhoods. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. We'll be back with TV Talk and our critics in just 90 seconds. Support. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Just want to give you a bit of scheduling information about our program. Tomorrow, Friday, as is typical, Austin Cross hosts in the 9 o'clock hour. He's got a great program lined up. And then I'll be back with you at 10 o'clock for the most important film week of the year. I say that because it's our year-end film week where we're going to talk about all of the movies that are being brought out for Oscar consideration. It's always a huge week, the week leading into Christmas. So we're going to have from our critics the full hour devoted to film reviews. That's tomorrow morning at 10. We'll also be repeating this week's film week next week because uh, so many of the films are coming next week as well as this current week. So, So this week's film week will be repeated next week as well for the holiday season. And then next week on Air Talk, it's going to be a week of some of my favorite interviews over the years. So we have put them together. Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, our senior producer, has compiled them and edited them. And we have them for you um, Tuesday, day after Christmas, all the way through the end of next week. So I hope you'll join us for some of my favorites as our staff enjoys a, a week off of rest and restoration for the holiday season. So, so good to have you with us on Air Talk. Um, all right, we turn our attention now to television, and our critics this week are Jen Cheney of Vulture and Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly. Kristen and Jen, so good to have you with us, but let me ask our listeners if you have a favorite series of 2023, one that maybe you discovered for the first time or is brand new, I'd love to hear your pick at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Let's start off with Peacock's Dr. Death debuting its second season on the streaming service. It stars Edgar Ramirez and Mandy Moore. Kristen, what do you think of this second season of Dr. Death? Well, I really loved the first season, so I had high hopes. And uh, this season stars Edgar Ramirez as Dr. Paolo Maccarini, who was an, is an Italian physician who was hailed as a pioneer in regenerative medicine until his patients started dying and his fraudulent research was exposed. And this season traces 
his misadventures through two timelines. In 2012, he arrives at the famed Karolinska Institute in Stockholm and begins transplanting what he calls, quote, biosynthetic tracheas into his patients. And most of the doctors at Kar Karolinska are dazzled, but there's one played by Luke Kirby, a skeptical American expat. Uh, he worries that the science isn't sound. And meanwhile, the second time timeline is in New York City in 2013, as NBC News produced Benita Alexander, who is played by Mandy Moore, starts working on a TV special about regenerative, regenerative me medicine, and she meets Dr. Macchiarini for a story, and when they meet, forbidden sparks fly. <laughs> and after a whirlwind romance, uh, Paolo and Benita get engaged, and one of the many whoppers of a lie that he tells her is that Pope Francis will officiate their wedding. So... On its face, Dr. Death kind of leads with this, this season leads with a show, uh, a, with the love con, the sort of, you know, who is this man lying to her, but their romance, Paolo and Benita's romance is so broadly sketched and flatly written that we never really understand how an accomplished journalist could yeah. fall for such a fabulist. And uh, it doesn't help that Mandy Moore is just miscast. She's a likable actress, but the real Benita Alexander, who can currently be seen telling her side of the story in Netflix's Bad Surgeon documentary, she's blunt and a little brassy, and she's kind of got this no BS edge of a New Yorker, um, but more, you know, is so nice, and she kind of looks out of place in New York City, and when she says the F word, it just sounds weird on her lips. Um, so it's just a shame because the actual medical true crime horror that is at the heart of this story is really compelling and nightmarish. You know, it's got desperate people who yeah. are in need of a miracle and a charismatic charlatan who, who makes it easy for these patients to believe. Um, and when the season focuses on the medical aspects and his, the doctor's obscene violation of his patient's trust, it's, it's uh, very captivating, but the other half just doesn't work. We're talking about Dr. Death, its second season premiering on Peacock and all eight episodes available starting today. Patrick McManus created this series based on the true crime podcast of the same name, Dr. Death, streaming on Peacock. It's rated TVMA. Well, Dr. Death, inspired by a podcast, Fargo, the series, of course, inspired by the 1996 Coen Brothers film, uh, Fargo Season 5 is on FX Network. The following day, each episode streams on Hulu. Juno Temple, John Hamm, Jennifer Jason Lee are just a few of the actors involved in, in the series. This is an anthology series taking place in and around Minnesota. Jen, what do you think of this fifth season of Fargo? This is such an excellent season of Fargo that, uh, you know, it, it runs into January. That's when it will conclude. And so I had not seen the whole thing when I wrote my list of top 10 TV shows of the year. If I had, there's a really good chance it would have been on the list. Uh, that's how strong I think it is this season. You know, you mentioned those three principal actors, Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. They're playing the kind of main figures in this. Uh, Juno's Temple, Juno Temple's character, Dorothy, is a woman in a very seemingly happy marriage, has a child, but there's some kind of hidden past that, she, that you don't know about uh, right away, and she's got men coming to chase her down, and you're not sure what it's all about. Uh, and then you've got John Hamm, who's playing this very aggressive, misogynist cowboy figure. It's, I would say, the darkest role I've seen John Hamm play, and he's terrific. 
And then Jennifer Jason Lee, who plays the mother-in-law of Juno Temple and is a very, very wealthy uh, woman, also very conservative but in a very different way from Ham's character. And the episode that airs the day after Christmas, which is the seventh episode, it is a, it is a string, begins a string of episodes that are just one heart attack after another. I was just like clutching my chest <laughs> the whole time I'm watching these episodes. But I mean that in the best way possible. It's really suspenseful, well acted, and just compelling right up to the very end. All right. We're talking about Fargo. Its fifth season is out now. Six episodes can currently be seen on Hulu. Episode 7 releases next Tuesday on FX with Hulu the following day. Season 5 has a total of 10 episodes. It's rated TVMA. Murder in Boston Roots Rampage and Reckoning is a crime documentary miniseries directed by Jason Hare. Uh, it's created in association with the Boston Globe. Kristen, what do you think of this miniseries doc? Uh, I found this really fascinating. Anyone who was on the East Coast uh, at this time, this was in 1989, remembers the case Chuck Stewart. Uh, called 911 one night saying that he and his pregnant wife, Carol, had been shot in their car and left for dead on a deserted street in Boston. We know now that Chuck killed Carol, but at the time he claimed, you know, a black man in a tracksuit had robbed them and shot them. And the police, rather than drilling down on this vague story, the Boston Police Department just launched an, an aggressive manhunt in the city's predominantly black neighborhoods of Mission Hill and Roxbury, terrorizing these communities and exacerbating Boston's roiling racial tensions. Um, so this is a three episode series that really kind of focuses on how uh, on the people who were traumatized by the police's decision to, you know, raid neighborhoods first and ask questions later and uh, includes uh, a history of Boston's, you know, turbulent race relations and specifically beginning with the 1974 school de desegregation ruling that created riots and was, you know, left scars on that city. And the documentary also features really heartrending interviews with Joey Bennett, who at 17 years old was coerced by the Boston PD into implicating his uncle Willie in the murder murder of Carol Stewart and her baby. So it it's a really, you know, it's a difficult watch, but it's really fascinating. And it does make clear that the damage done by this case you know, still resonates and endures decades later. We're talking about the Max streaming miniseries documentary Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. It's rated TVMA. All three episodes in the self-contained miniseries are out now. The Crown, in its sixth and final season on Netflix, the final episode is out. All ten episodes of the sixth and final season are available to stream on Netflix. Elizabeth Debicki and Imelda Staunton star in the series from Peter Morgan. Jen, what do you think of the final season and the ultimate episode? Yeah, I feel like The Crown really lost a step in this last season. You know, I think it's it's challenging, I think, to tell the story behind much more recent history because it is so well known uh, and, and still feels like so much of the present for a lot of people. Uh, and I think it stumbled with the first part of the episodes with um, that really focus on Princess Diana's death. And then the second batch of the, the final episodes, which just landed uh, a week ago or so, 
is really focused on the aftermath of her death. Uh, you know, there's a couple of episodes that are very focused on Prince William and then uh, sort of the queen kind of planning for her death, which is really what the last episode uh, focuses on. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything. I think everyone knows Queen Elizabeth did eventually pass away. Uh, but, you know, it, it feels like, especially with the scenes with William and Harry, the dialogue really suffers. It feels like Peter Morgan uh, and his fellow writers don't quite know how to write uh, for, for them. They have a much deeper and better understanding of the queen herself. Uh, I think the best episode is one that is very focused on the queen and on Princess Margaret as she uh, nears death. Uh, that's the best episode. And I think certainly the performances from Imelda Staunton and Leslie Manville, uh, who plays Margaret, they're excellent uh, throughout, uh, but not as good as some of those earlier seasons were. All right. Even despite all the great acting talent that's a part of it, The Crown, its sixth and final season on Netflix, all 10 episodes are now streaming. We continue on our TV Talk Thursday with our critics Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly and Jen Cheney of Vulture. But again, I'd like to hear from you in the final minutes of our TV Talk today what you thought was the best television you saw in 2023, whether it's a, a new series or whether it's something that you just connected with that you'd never seen before that's been out for a while, but this was the year for you to catch up with it. Uh, next uh, up on uh, on uh, our critics list is Big Brother Reindeer Games, in which nine Big Brother house guests have received an invitation to compete in a brand new game with holiday themed competitions. Um, and uh, this rated TVPG, it's on CBS Network, streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Kristen, what do you think of Big Brother Reindeer Games? Well, I'm a Big Brother addict. You know, all summer I'm glued to the TV. It's like my sports. And so this holiday-themed miniseries was really the equivalent of a Christmas miracle for me. Um, so they take nine fan-favorite Big Brother players, like Season 24 winner Taylor Hale, season 14's Brittany Godwin, and season 16's Frankie Grandy. And they compete against each other in these very silly games for $100,000. Unlike the regular show, it's only six episodes long, nobody lives in the house, and the Chenbot, aka Julie Chen Moonvest, the host, is nowhere to be found. But it's an accelerated sort of you know, sugar rush of what we like from Big Brother, <laughs> shifting alliances, sudden betrayals, ridiculous challenges, including things called the Candy Cane Rodeo and the Ugly Christmas Sweater Puzzle Challenge. Um, you know, it's the contestants are all veterans, so they know exactly what to do. They they we get to skip all the boring get to know you stuff from a typical Big Brother season. They just jump straight into strategizing, scheming, backstabbing. Um, tonight is the finale, and I'm really rooting for Brittany Godwin, who is a walking meme generator. I love her so much, so I hope she takes home the win. Sounds like fun. Big Brother Reindeer Games on CBS Network, streaming on Paramount+. Plus. And as Kristen just said, the finale airs live tonight. It's live tonight, 5 o'clock Pacific time, so even prior to prime time. And uh, then we've got Christmas, uh, Christmas TV special, one that is beloved by many of us from 1966 that Chuck Jones directed a Grinch voiced by Boris Karloff starring How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Jen, uh, so many of us just just love this and even as adults try not to miss it. 
Absolutely. I mean, certainly you can stream How the Grinch Stole Christmas anytime you want to on Peacock. Uh, there are other platforms that have it as well. But uh, I, I love the idea of just watching it at a set time on TV the way I did when I was a kid. And it's airing on, uh, I believe it's TNT uh, this Friday night. And uh, it's just it's just such a delight to me. I know there have been other versions of the Grinch, the Jim Carrey one. There was an animated movie version made not too long ago. But yeah. to, for me, the Grinch is that original Chuck Jones cartoon and, and nothing else can compare. Yeah, it's got a wonderful score. It's just, yeah, it it's so outstanding. You know, it's funny with all the holiday theme programs, some of which have been quite good in intervening years. But we go back to the mid-60s for a Charlie Brown Christmas and how the Grinch stole Christmas. And it's very difficult to beat uh, that combination. Uh, Jen uh, telling us about it again. It is available whenever you want to watch on, on Peacock, on NBC, Christmas Day. 5 p.m. Pacific time. We'll continue with Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture, and Kristen Baldwin, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. I'm going to ask them what the best thing is they saw this year, 2023. I know it's hard to pick one because there's so much great television that's out there, but I want to hear from you. What was the highlight for you in TV viewing, the thing that just has left you thinking about it? as it washed over you sometime throughout the course of this year. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in a minute. It's TV Talk Thursday. I'm Larry Mantle. So pleased to be joined by critics Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly and Jen Cheney of Vulture. It's a chance to hear from you, your favorite television series of 2023. But let me ask our critics, and I know this is so, so hard to do. It's hard enough, I'm sure, for them to put together a 10 best list for the year, which is a staple of of doing criticism. But to pick one that's head and shoulders, Jen Cheney of Vulture, you have to pick one series. What would it be? Well, I had to because my list was ranked. Oh, it and, is? Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I had to pick my number one. And, you know, I debated it with myself for a while. And I thought my initial instinct was it's succession. And then I thought, well, that's just so unsurprising, you know. But then I was like, but I'm lying to myself if I say anything else because that show was you know, I, I was probably most obsessed with that show more than anything else I watched. I rewatched the episodes repeatedly. Uh, it's just working on so many levels and the dialogue is so well written. It's so well acted. It's just and I just thought it finished incredibly strong uh, in its final season. So that was it for yeah. me. And well, then I should ask you as a follow up, because you had some qualms, given that so many people saw Succession and knew about it. Is there a particular under the radar, lesser seen gem, the the one that maybe you most wish people would take your advice on and see, but who maybe haven't heard heard about it? Well, I'll I'll point to the number three show on my list, which doesn't feel like uh, something that's undiscovered. But every time I mention it to people, they say they haven't watched it yet. And that's Reservation Dogs, uh, oh, which yeah. is an FX yeah. program, but it's uh, streaming on Hulu and uh, tells the story of young people as well as old people, especially in its last season, which, which just ended uh, on a reservation in Oklahoma. And it's just so imaginative and clever and funny, but also really, really moving. 
And uh, I, I feel like not enough people have seen that yet. So it's if you haven't watched series. it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I join you in that recommendation. All right. So we heard Jen Cheney's recommendations. Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly, your top series of 2023. I mean, I had the same debate and I went with succession for many of the same reasons. So, you know, but if you want to hear about an under the radar gem from my list, yes to reservation dogs, but also anybody who has Paramount Plus, is there anyone out there who has Paramount Plus, please go watch Bargain, which is a Korean uh, survival thriller. Uh, It's incredibly funny, even though it's about people being trapped in an earthquake after being trapped in an organ harvesting ring. So it's a a laugh a minute comedy. Okay. (laughs) I'll take your word. It's just so, uh, it's really, it's shot as one continuous shot or to look as one continuous shot. And it's just, you know, incredibly propulsive and funny. And there's all the characters are terrible people and they're unrepentantly terrible, yet you root for them to get out anyway. I just really loved it. We have um, Dana in South Pasadena who emailed New Amsterdam and Suits, such great characters with a focus on helping others. Plus, these shows were suspenseful and entertainment. Elise in Boyle Heights emailed the show Girlfriends, which aired back in the early aughts, featuring Tracy Ellis Ross, one of the best shows around. Unfortunately, never got the recognition it deserved. It's now on Netflix. I've been watching again and again. What a gem. I hope Netflix doesn't remove it and the Miss Ross gets recognition for amazing work on this show. That's Elise in Boyle Heights. Cliff in Carson City, Nevada emailed Jury Duty on Amazon Amazon Prize, a Prime Unforgettable. The writing and acting is amazing. Jury Duty was absolutely uh, hilarious. Uh, Jay Spencer in Pasadena emailed 2023, a great year in TV. Some of the standouts, final season of Ted Lasso, first seasons of Shrinking and The Last of Us, Reservation Dogs, final season, both beautiful as well as illuminating in his depictions of historical injustices to Native American communities. And the best episode of television had to have been The Feast of the Seven Fishes, the Christmas episode of The Bear, centering around a family dinner where an argument quickly escalates from inane to epic in the time of a great episode that I'm sure families can relate to. Great stuff. That Feast of the Seven Fishes, that's tough to beat for an episode of TV. Matt D'Angelo and Tony, our senior producer, nodding his head. It was jaw-dropping, that episode of television. People who followed the bear this season know exactly uh, what Jay Spencer is talking about. And we have uh, Nigelko of Los Feliz who said, nothing brought me more laughs and joy this year than Poker Face on Peacock, starring Natasha Leone. The show offered us a captivating lead and a weekly puzzle to solve that are once thrilling and moving each episode. And funny, I love Poker Face. I'm absolutely with you, Nigelko. And hopefully it made some critics' top 10 lists. Did it make either of your lists, uh, Jen or Kristen? It wasn't in my top 10. Uh, It was 
it was it was close, but it wasn't it wasn't quite there. The bear was in there though for yeah. sure. Oh, the yeah. bear! What? A, and uh, I would argue that Forks is a better episode than uh, okay. than Feast of the Fishes, though. I did. I mean, that's enjoy. how good that show is. That's how good. Yeah, <laughs> that's like you're 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 splitting hairs on what you know was the greatest form of art in tremendous yes, artistry. Exactly. Thank you both so much for being with us this week. I appreciate it. Frequent TV critics joining us on our TV Talk segment: Jen Cheney of Vulture, Kristen Baldwin of Entertainment Weekly. Clay and Glendale says, um, Antiques Roadshow on PBS, charming TV. I find it super soothing. And Sarah in West Hollywood says, we're watching Mad Men the second time around, which is my partner's first time. Now, I want to turn our attention now to the heavy weather expected to arrive in the greater Los Angeles, Orange County area later today. Our Jacob Margolis, science correspondent with us. Jacob, what are we in store for? We saw Ventura County just get hammered overnight. Yeah, absolutely. And the hammering is going to continue. You know, we could see up to one to two inches of rain per hour across Santa Barbara, Ventura, and West LA counties, uh, which one to two inches of rain per hour is a lot. And that is kind of the flooding threshold, a major flooding threshold that uh, I know I watch for and weather experts do as well. So do we have a sense of of the speed of the storm? Because I know a lot of times with flooding and damage, it's the slow moving storms that are more dangerous than the than the dramatic ones, but that whip through quickly. Yeah, and that's absolutely what's happening here as well. It's kind of slowing down. We're getting pockets of heavy rain to these areas. And it's especially concerning when you have uh, steep areas that are getting that too. So we did see um, down near the coast an evacuation in the Port Wainimi area, very isolated spot, uh, another spot up in Casita Springs. But we're also seeing some flooding in Santa Barbara. And so this is going to continue until, uh, I believe, through Friday. The hazards will be in place through Friday. Um, and we should be good for uh, Christmas Eve, though, and Christmas, Larry. And what are we looking at? Are we looking at thunderstorms uh, likely, potential of tornadoes? Because there were tornado warnings last night. Yeah, and there are concerns of lightning uh, in the Malibu area that I'm seeing uh, people warning about the beaches and so okay. you probably don't want to be hanging out on the beaches anyway uh, they're very gross uh, also don't go in the water for 72 hours please, please. yeah because of all the runoff that, that yeah yes, is contaminated so true jacob thank you so much i appreciate you being with us uh and Thanks, happy Larry. holidays to you and your family thank you jacob margolis science correspondent for laist i want to thank our tremendous team as i head into a holiday break austin cross with you tomorrow morning at nine and we're off next week with Best of Air Talk. Air Talk reprises next week. We're led by our senior producer, Matt D'Angelo-Antonio, the best production team in all of radio. Lindsay Wright, Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, Michael Goldsmith, Daniel Martinez helping us this week, and our great news apprentices, Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez, our flawless technical director, Evelyn Bocanegra. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of 2023. I'll next talk with you tomorrow on Film Week and then back in the new year. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.